why did Jesus come into the world? It must have been a pretty good reason for, for God to leave his throne in heaven to come and be among us, to permanently wed his deity with humanity. There must have been an important reason, right? I remember back in my warehouse days, the one time the vice president of the whole company came down to talk to us warehouse guys. And let me tell you, that was a pretty big day for us because like, we knew what good news or bad news, this was going to be a big deal. The vice president would not condescend and speak to us warehouse guys for just any old reason. We knew they were going to either ask something big of us or really rip into us for something we didn't know, but we knew it was going to be a big deal. But how much more so for Jesus to leave his throne, the Son of God to condescend down into earth, it must have been something unique. It must have been something very important. Now, some people say Jesus came into the world to, to give us an example. Show us how to live. Show us how to love one another and, uh, and be compassionate towards others. And, well, that's certainly part of the reason. Others say Jesus came to be a martyr for a good cause. That's why he came to earth. And Yeah, there are many partial reasons why Jesus came. But the Bible already sufficiently shows us how to live. What pleases God, what displeases God, we, you can construct that from the Old Testament. That, that that's, can't be the whole reason why Jesus came. And look, I, I know secular movements that have martyrs for their faith or their belief system or their cause. So that, that's not particularly unique. So... What Jesus came for must have been something only he could have done. And we see exactly what that is in verse 28 of Matthew 20, where it says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is by far the fullest answer for why Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for, me, for us, for his church. Something that no other faith proclaims that somebody has done for them. Something that only Jesus could do. And yet he did come to serve us too, as we highlighted last week. But the greatest way Jesus served us was through the cross where he laid down his life for his friends, which he now calls each and every one of you. <laughs> but we're left with an important question. What's a ransom? It's not a word we typically use in our everyday vocabulary. It's, it's, it's the price paid to release somebody from a debt, from slavery, from captivity, from something they clearly don't want to be part of. And what was our debt? that had to be released? What was holding us that had to be paid? Romans 6.23 says, tells us, the wages of sin is death. Just as God promised back to Adam in the, Adam, in, in the Garden of Eden when he said, you know, if you eat of this fruit, what was the promise? What was the wage? What was the price told? You will surely die. That was the promise. And God keeps his promises. Death was the price that had to be paid for our sins. And the problem is that we can't pay our own price ourselves because we're sinners. 
I cannot die for the sins of another or even myself. Because as a sinner myself, I'm disqualified to pay the, to pay the payment for my own sin. I just add more debt to the tally. I don't take away sin in that way. But yet, even from the earliest passages of Scripture, there's always been hope. Where even while still in the garden, before Adam even left, there was this foreshadowing that a substitute would be made on his behalf. A substitute would be made to atone for sins with that lamb or the animal. We're not told it's a lamb. I think it's a lamb. Uh, was killed by God himself. Killed, the lamb killed by God to provide a covering for Adam. There's, there's a picture there that I think is meant for us to see. The law then further clarified, saying that this had to be a spotless lamb who would have to be used for the sacrifice. You see this throughout the Levitical laws and Exodus, num, uh, Numbers, uh, Leviticus. You, you see it all throughout there. Um, and they, the Israelites had this temple practice through for many years of regularly bringing their sacrifices into the temple to atone for their sin. And then the prophets further clarified, as we read this morning in our first reading in Isaiah 53, for instance, that the Messiah would be the one who would be pierced for our transgressions, taking our sins upon himself so that we wouldn't be on the hook for our own sins, that God would lay upon him the inequity of us all, bearing the wrath of sin in his own body for our ransom, for our release, until we get to the New Testament where we have the wonderful words of John the Baptist who boldly and triumphantly proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's somewhat lost on us because, you know, we're, we're removed from the Old Testament system. We're removed from the, the, that, that, that what the Israelites had to do year by year, bringing their own lamb into the temple who had to be spotless and they would lay their hands upon the head of that lamb and symbolically transferring their sin from themselves to this lamb. And then that lamb would be led into the temple, to the place where it belonged, and slaughtered there, saying, that's what my sin did. And that animal just paid for my sins symbolically. And they would see this year after year. And, to, and then, so when John the Baptist came and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, they knew what that meant. It didn't just sound like pretty fluffy imagery. There was a shadow of the cross even there. That is the ransom Jesus came to give his life for. The death I deserve, the penalty that I could not pay. And through the cross, conquering sin and death, removing the sting of death for anyone who was a Christian this morning. The sting is taken away. The finality of death has been reduced only to a shadow of death that, we, that passes through us during a funeral service and will pass over us as we you know, walk that path someday ourselves. But the darkness gives way immediately to glorious light as to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord in heaven. But by the way, who was this ransom paid to? Who was the, this debt that was owed to? It was owed to God. 
It was owed to God, the one who told us we would surely die if we sinned, the one who said that what are the wages of our sin is, the one who the sacrificial system of the Old Testament pointed to. Those sacrifices were made to God as an offering for sin. It uh, wasn't made for, or wasn't made to Satan, I should say. You'll, you'll occasionally meet people who believe that. A lot of cults believe that. Uh, but rather, such a thing is not even hinted in Scripture, which is why I am so big on like letting the Scriptures speak for themselves. I don't care what denominations or church history says. I care about what the Bible says. And you know, the Bible is very clear about who that sacrifice was made to. And it's also very clear that Jesus on the cross destroyed the power of Satan, destroyed the power of death, rendering, again, that sting with, without its sting for all who repent and believe the good news this morning. So the question remains, however, from this verse, from verse 28, what did Jesus mean by many? I mean, Let's be honest, wouldn't you guys have expected that word to be all? Jesus paid for the sins of all? Wouldn't I think that would be the gut reaction of most of us here. So why does it say many? And to put it simply, many can mean all, depending on its context. Which I think it, uh, it must mean that here for many different reasons. Uh, for instance, Romans 5.19 tells us, Using the same words, for as by one man's disobedience, speaking of Adam's, by the way, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. How many people did Adam make sinners? All. (laughs) Yes, of course. All. So in short, this word many is being used the same way here, in the same way that through Adam's disobedience, all were made sinners. Through Jesus Christ, he paid for all sin. And if there's any lingering doubt, 1 John 2, 2 gives us, uh, you know, settles it, the, he, it, where it says Jesus was the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You can't get much more clear than that. However, while Jesus gave his life for all to be saved, not all will be saved. The Bible's also clear about that. We read some time ago in the Gospel of Matthew, you know, broad is the way that leads to destruction, narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few are those who find it, right? So how do we reconcile all of that? If if sins sins are paid for, are they not? Well, what is it, John? Well, it's kind of like this. Imagine after service, I go ahead and I call the local pizza joint. And I give him my credit card information. And I say, hey, there's a pizza ready for you to be picked up. You just have to give him your name around noontime and say, yep, that's me. And you'll receive it. it. You see, it's paid for. It's all set. I took care of the bill. You just have to go and take it. The question is now on you. Are you going to take it? Some of you guys might be like, yeah, I don't know, John. I think I'd rather have my own lunch today. Or kind of had too much last night anyway. I got some indigestion. I think I'll pass. Whatever the case might be, it's up to you to receive it, even though it's paid for. And the same is obviously true. You guys are all nodding. You're getting the point. It's the same thing about being a Christian. You know, there's nothing needed of you to pay. It's already paid for. The bill's taken care of. The bill's footed. You just need to just, uh, you, you just need to show up at the foot of God's door 
and say, yeah, that's me, a sinner. It's got my name right on it. Please forgive me. And if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that this good news of the gospel, you will be saved, the Bible promises us. The offer is available to now to all who have eyes to see it. Sometimes even for those who don't have physical eyes to see it. As we see, as we quickly tackle this short paragraph coming up here. I know I'm kind of piecemealing two different sermons together here, but I think it's important. Let's uh, jump back into our text in verse 29 that says, And now as they went out from Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And blindness, of course, was actually quite common in that type of area, in that area at that time. You know, the, the blinding sun and the sand didn't help, but it was largely diseases at that time that really caused so much rampant blindness at that time of in, in, in that area. A lot of diseases caused it. Even right from childbirth, things were getting passed. Um, things that we now have medicine and all kinds of modern technology to alleviate from, even, even today with the same diseases. Uh, but they didn't have cures 2,000 years ago for most of them. But while these men's physical eyes were deficient, oh, their spiritual eyes were opened. They could see quite well, mind you, calling Jesus the son of David, a clear messianic title. You didn't call, walk around any, anywhere calling somebody the son of David. That It was a clear expectation from the scriptures the Messiah would be from the lineage of David, which is why we make such a big deal about that around Christmas time as that's coming up. The tide of Bethlehem, the city of David, the lineage of David, to be counted in the consensus as from the family of David. It's so important for that. But what's more is that these people are asking Jesus to have mercy on them. To have mercy on them. Why would they ask that? You see, here's a principle that we all should be, that you guys are all aware of already. You will only ask somebody for something if you think that they are able to give you that something or willing to give you that something. They got to be able and willing. And with that in mind, I couldn't help but to notice none of you guys asked me for help on your taxes this year. And for a good reason. <laughs> I, I am unqualified, I am unable, and I am unwilling at this point. I can't figure it out myself. My own situation's too complicated. So I'm ignorant, I'm unqualified, you shouldn't be bringing that to me. <laughs> but these men were convinced that Jesus was willing and able to heal them. Isn't that fascinating? And that's a big deal because passages like Isaiah 35, which I almost had as our first reading this morning, led to a belief that only God could open the eyes of the blind. And that's, that's a fascinating truth to think about. So what are they saying here implicitly about who they believe Jesus to be? And, I, and with that, that thought in mind, I'm going to come back to that, but I'm convinced the reason we don't talk, we don't pray more to God is because God is too small in our own eyes. We, we don't believe he's either compassionate enough or powerful enough to meet us where we are. 
And this paragraph serves as a sufficient rebuke to both of those thoughts. As Jesus takes pity once again on those whom the world would have had no problem labeling the least of these, discardable, unimportant. And he does the impossible for them. Something, again, only God can do. And this is remarkable that he can restore the eyes of the blind. The more that you understand about the eye, the eye is so incredibly complicated. I was reading an article this week that said that the human eye has something like two million moving parts. That's absurd when you think about the complexity of the eye. And if even a small percentage of those two million working parts don't work, you are totally blind. It has to be just about perfect. And, for those, and if it's not, well, you end up at least with these, <laughs> if you're lucky. <laughs> you know, Charles Darwin himself said that, uh, that, you know, the one who theorized that everything slowly evolved over time and small little changes here, small little changes there gave birth to everything. It is said that he experienced a cold shudder when he considered the human eye because it was far too complicated for this to just evolve over time. Even admitting that it seems absurd, his words, by the way, not mine, that it seemed absurd for such a complex organ to just evolve over time. That's got some powerful ramifications for us, by the way, church. <laughs> That's got radical implications for what you know is physically possible and for... The worldview implications of that. I'm just going to let that be, though, for the sake of time. And speaking of which, keeping in mind, you know, from what we're about to see next, keep in mind, to this day, we have no cure for blindness. You know, we, we have things that can help if you struggle with your problems. You know, I can put frames over my eyes and correct a, them not focusing exactly the right way. And we, can, we have procedures that can clear something from your eyes if there's something in the way. You know, these are all things that we can do, but there's no way of fixing one of those two million parts once something goes wrong. We still don't know how to do that 2,000 years later. So that makes what we're about to read that much more profound as our narrative picks up again in verse 31. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? That could be its own sermon. I wish I had time to unpack that. But stopping for a minute to ask, you know, what do you want Jesus to do for you? If you were to approach him, what would you ask? And the beauty of knowing that we can, but again, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Also, too, the world cannot see the value of these men. You notice once again in the narrative, these people are coming to Jesus, and some people are pushing them away, saying, no, 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 don't bother the Savior. You're not important. But the people who most of the people are pushing away usually are the people Jesus most wants to talk to, I've noticed. And they press on. They don't just stay where they are. And their answer in response to Jesus' great question here, is in verse 33, and I love this. They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus 
in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Jesus answered their impossible request as if it was nothing. Just just touch their eyes. Something we can't do with the most advanced machinery 2,000 years later. He just touches them. And he's healed. And immediately, by the way, this isn't some slow miracle you'll see in these modern charlatans that claim to be faith healers. Oh, you know, if you, I touched your eyes, you, if you have enough faith, you'll believe and you'll slowly recover your sight. No, it was immediate, instantaneous healing. But what's even more profound here than Jesus' power is his compassion that we see here. Jesus mentioned back in verse 17 that they are now headed towards Jerusalem for the final week of Jesus' life. And look, if I knew that it was the final week of my life and I knew the matter of death, I was going to die like Jesus was going to die, I wouldn't have much peace. I'd be anxious, I'd be worried, I'd be fearful, I couldn't, I, I couldn't, probably couldn't string a few sentences together. <laughs> I, I I'd be so focused and, and fearful, but I don't see anything like that in Jesus at all. Here he, he feels pity and compassion for these people around him, these men, these random men who run into them, who, again, are, would have been discarded by society. And, you know, I mentioned this earlier. I want to dive into it now that we acknowledge Jesus as having general compassion towards his church. Yes, he died to give his life as a ransom, for the many, for the church, for, for those who would believe, that's, that's awesome. But does Jesus love me personally? Does he have compassion on me as an individual? That's a different question. But this narrative answers that question by giving us a window into the heart of Jesus. You see, you can always tell what's in somebody's heart by what comes out of a person. Jesus, you guys, many of you guys were here when we covered when Jesus said, you know, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever's in your heart is going to come out through your words. You can only paste it up so much. A dear friend and mentor of mine actually demonstrated this beautifully. He once took a water bottle like this. Uh, some of you have seen me make this demonstration before. Took the cap off the top and just bumped it from the bottom. <laughs> Essentially baptizing the wall behind me. And as he did so, he had the audacity to ask the question, now why did water come out? Me being a young intern at the time under him said, well, because you're insane. (laughs) And then he proceeds to do it again. (laughs) And he says, no, 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 why did water come out? As I looked behind me and I seen the water stream down the office wall behind me, The answer was obvious. Water came out because water is what's in this bottle. He could hit that thing all day long. There wouldn't ever be coffee coming out of this or orange juice or whatever your drink of choice is. None of that was going to come out of that bottle because somebody put water in that bottle. That's why that happened the way that it did. It was just what, it came out because it, it just it had the opportunity to come out. That's all. But the reason it was water was because that's what was in there. 
The question becomes then, with that in mind, what spills out of you when opportunities in life come up to reveal what's in your heart? What spills out of you? Look, life bumps out of all of us. We're all caught off guard. We're all fine in impromptu situations. We're not, most of our lives aren't like I am right now where I got a chance to kind of rehearse and write down my thoughts. Most of life is impromptu. What spills out of us as we go about our day? What comes out of the abundance of your heart when what's in your heart is given an opportunity to come out? Let's ask the question directly. Is it patience? Are you revealed to be a patient person? by what comes out of your mouth and what comes out of your actions? Are you revealed to be a patient person when you're cut off on Route 9? See some of you guys getting a little anxious as I'm saying that. Are you revealed to be a loving person? Empathetic or kind? Or is that at the other end of the spectrum sometimes? Sometimes we don't like what we see when the innermost parts of our heart are revealed. And we're shown to be angry. And we see frustration coming from our heart, agitation, irritability. What is it for you? Because again, your actions reveal your heart. And here's something that we don't think enough about. We get to choose what's in this bottle. We get to choose what's in our hearts. We don't think, we, we, most of modern psychology in the media says, oh, you, you just dealt with what you're dealt with. You're stuck with what you got. Might as well just learn to deal with it and get used to people. Uh, um, just get used to people having, getting used to how you are. You're just the way that you are. You're never going to change. Well, that's not true. That's not what the gospel promises me. The gospel promises me a new heart. Jesus promises to make me a new creation. Uh, Ro- Romans uh, twelve two talks about how I can be transformed by the renewing of my mind through the gospel. And frankly, we all know this intuitively. The secular world knows this. They refuse to acknowledge it. But I I saw something incredible this week. I saw a pair of headphones that somebody wrote on the case. It was a case that held headphones. And on this case, somebody wrote on it, you will become whatever comes through these. Wow, that's profound. You will become whatever comes through these speakers. Whatever you put before your ears constantly is what you're going to become like. You fill your ears with hate, you're going to be filled with hate. You fill your, you fill your ears with the news, you're going to be filled with hate. Let's be honest. Hatred for the other side of the political aisle. You're going to be filled with that stuff. Same thing with whatever TV shows that you watch or books that you read, the people that you spend time with. You will become like whatever you surround yourself in. That's a convicting truth for a lot of us. But yet how encouraging is it to think, wait a minute, I have that kind of control out of who I can become? My actions and my choices can impact that, the outcome that much? Yes. Now imagine for a second how much our lives would be different. Our families would be different. Our relationships would be different if we chose to fill our hearts with Jesus instead of all the other junk in this world. This world's trying to fill this body with anything other than pure water. Something to think about.
We have to consciously choose what we're going to fill our hearts with and to allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in our hearts, changing us and conforming us more into the image of Christ Jesus. It's not a legalistic thing. It's a. It's how much do I want to be filled with him? Am I adequately filling myself with his promises? Am I adequate? Am I spending enough time in his word? Or is he just not important with me and I'm letting the world fill this bottle for me? Now let's consider, with that in mind, Jesus was completely caught off guard by these two men. Now, this, it, the healing of these two blind men was not on the official apostolic itinerary for that day. They just so happened to be traveling through this crowd, navigating this great crowd on their way to, towards Jerusalem, Perhaps preparing their hearts for the great welcome they're about to receive in the beginning of the next chapter. We'll get there next time. And with all of this going on, getting ready for the most important week in the history of humanity. And with all of that going on, what spills out of the heart of Jesus? Compassion, pity, love. That's what spilled out of Jesus' heart out of this impromptu moment for these two men who were nothing to the world, but were everything to Jesus. This is a window into Jesus' heart. Out of the abundance of the mouth, the heart speaks. Jesus, and based off of that, I can assure each of us today, yes, Jesus does care deeply about you and your situation. And, and, and there's a dozen verses that say the same thing. If we had time to unpack them, I would. But Romans 8.32 is a great one to just jot down if you're wondering. It says that essentially if God gave his own son for us, how will he not freely give us all things now? I mean, what's left to us that he hasn't already given us? I mean, is God now, the God who gave his only son for you, going to just decide now, you know what, that's enough? Is he, is he just going to say, I gave my only son for you, you know, I'm just going to ignore you now? No. The gospel assures me that the God who gave his only son for me, no, he's going to give me all the rest. Because he loves me. He cares for me. So yes, in a, just as Jesus was not or never too busy with his mission to show compassion on these men, likewise, when you get on your knees and pray, it's, it's as if to just picture this for a second, that God for a moment hits the pause button on maintaining and sustaining the whole universe and looks down upon you as you go to your knees in prayer and says, what is it, my child? with all the patience in the world for you. That's amazing. And look, if we really believe that's what happens when we pray to God, the problem wouldn't be getting us to pray. It'd be getting us to stop. It would be getting us to stop, to, to stop praying and go to work and, and, and to do all the other things that we have to do. We would be so preoccupied with this if we really believe that's what happens. Do we really believe that what the Bible says is really real? If so, are we living like it? It's a convicting thought. One 
concluding thought on that matter, just because I know I'm just about out of time. But Jesus never lost sight of his main mission of the cross, nor these two needy men at any point in today's narrative. And this ought to be true of every single church as well and every single individual in it. (laughs) The main mission of the church has always been and always will be the gospel, that our main focus must always be the word, worship, fellowship, and prayer. It must always be these main things. However, (laughs) in a biblical church, we must also never be too busy to show compassion to our neighbors in need while we're at it. Whether that be physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever it might be, we meet people where their needs are as well. These aren't in tension with each other. They're in harmony. Now, churches that are all Bible study and that's all that they do, that becomes a legalistic church. That becomes... um, You know, a heartless church. People rightfully call those churches. But the same can also be said of so-called social justice churches. Where they abandon the priority of worship and the scriptures. And out of their desire to so-called love one another, they neglected their love of God. That happens all the time also. And people don't talk enough about that. But again, in a balanced church, there is no tension because we love God and we love people because Jesus loved God and loved people and showed us how to do that. And it's almost as if those are the two greatest commandments, right? And they're in order for a reason. We get the strength to love our neighbor as ourselves. Through loving the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's how that works. It doesn't go the other way around. You can meet many people who love others and give their life to others. I know of so many religions and missionaries and other groups that give their life to serving others. But they have no love for the one true God. No, it has to be in that order. Loving God. That gives us the strength to love those around us. And I pray that is always true of this church. I mean, I'm not going to live forever. I'm not going to live to be 150. (laughs) At some point, somebody else is going to take the reins of this church. I don't know when that'll be. Something could happen to me. Something could, uh, the, the, the Lord could come back in the rapture. It could happen any day. Who knows? But I pray it's always true of this place. And I pray it's always true of every individual member of it. Does this describe you? So with that in mind, let's take the town for the gospel. <laughs> let's, and let's do so one person at a time. Whoever is right in front of us. Whatever their needs are. Let us seek out of the abundance Christ has given us to fill it with the incredible abundance spiritually, emotionally, and yeah, somewhat physically as well. We help those needs as well. But let's fix our eyes upon Jesus in the meantime and let our love for him cause us to serve others with the love that we first learned through him. Thanks be to God. Amen.